Got some pretty big news to share with everybody. Uh, I'm about to become a millionaire. Little backstory to that. Um, got an email and uh, from a lawyer of like a foreign prince, and he's just saying what they need is a bank account, and if if they could use mine, then they'd be happy to leave me with ten million of the dollars. So I'm out of here. And no, just kidding. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You hear those stories once in a while, right? You're like, that's too good to be true. Delete. That's called, we have a category for that. It's called spam. Like, that's not true. It's too good to be true. And it's not true. Got to wonder what this, this man, this, this father of the faith, Abraham, must have been thinking when he hears from God, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you descendants, Abraham. What, what, what would have been going through his mind? Because he's not only hearing that, that God telling him, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you descendants, but, but he's just not going to give him a land. He's going to give him a country. He's going to give him a nation. He's not just going to give him descendants. He's going to give him descendants as numerous as the stars. Aside from Jesus in the Bible, there is not a more significant person in the scriptures than Abraham. Of the monotheistic faiths of the world, Abraham's kind of the father. He's the father of Judaism. His, his son Ishmael is considered the father of Islam. As we're going to see in this series we're embarking on this morning in the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 to 22, we're going to discover really as we look at it through the lens of the New Testament as well that all the promises of God that were given to Abraham actually find their fulfillment in Christ and therefore Abraham's our father. And so with the exception of Jesus, Abraham is probably the most important person in the Bible. And if you know the book of Genesis at all, you'll, 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 you'll see a lot of indications of that reality. There's, there's something enormously significant about Abraham. Here's a few uh, uh, things that I mean. In Genesis 1 to 11, the first 11 chapters of the first book of the Bible, what, what those chapters show us is the slow, steady, shocking spread of sin. Genesis 1 to 11. Pick it up in Genesis 12 onward, and what we discover there is it shows us God recreating a people. He's doing something new. He's, a correction is coming. This, this promise of God's covenant is starting here. There's a new creation that, that's being embarked upon. In chapters 1 through 11 in Genesis, the word blessing is used five times. The word blessing is used five times in the first couple of verses of Genesis 12. Just this gigantic shift is taking place. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they're devoted to the previous 19 generations. And then all of a sudden it slows down and in chap um, the next 14 chapters are dedicated to Abraham. 19 generations covered in 11 chapters. In the next 14 chapters they're dedicated to the life of Abraham. So we want to delve into that. We want to look at this God who makes promises about things like descendants as numerous as the stars, and we also want to zero in on a man named Abraham who placed his faith in that God. 
And so we pick it up in the, at the end of Genesis 11 where the transition, this critical transition takes place in this book. And it tells us some things that we, we need to be aware of. Verse 27 says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. If anyone's looking for a new baby name, Milcah, throwing it out there, very rare. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were a brisk 205 years, and Terah died in Haran really interesting, actually, after the flood, all right, the, the ages of individuals just begins to shrink, 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 shrink. Turan lives into his 200s, Abraham will live into his 100s, and it continues to just sink. Now, there's some really interesting uh, things to note here. Um, the, the, the author wants us to have some key information. We're going to hear about this guy Lot quite a bit in the stories, and so they're placing him for us. That's Abraham's nephew. Lot just kind of finds his way in with Abraham. And, um, and we also see that Abram's wife, Sarai, uh, is barren. She has no children, unable to have children. They're getting up in years. Abraham's 75 at this point, have no kids. They want us to, to see that as we're about to see some of the promises of God that are be de- being delivered to them. Uh, if you look closely when I was reading, I was, it was the word, the name Abram and Sarai, but you might know them as Abraham and Sarah. Later, their names change. There's significance to the meaning of names, and so there's significance in that shift. I'm probably not going to say Abram at all the appropriate times. I'm probably just going to go with Abraham almost all the time, but that shift will happen a bit later on. I'm going to throw a map on the screen just to kind of give us a little bit of context. Where are we? Where are these places? What's going on? We start with the city of Ur and his family make their way up to Haran. Now that's a 950 kilometer journey. That's like caravanning from here to Lethbridge. Why would you do it? Um, And uh, and then from there, Abram's family is going to work their way down to Shechem, another 650 kilometers. It's like being in Lethbridge and then continuing on to Saskatoon, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. We all know that, Saskatoon, right? So, so there's a little bit of context, some of the characters, the people that we're going to be looking in at their lives on, uh, the places and where they're headed the promised land, this land of promise. And so now we can pick it up in our text this morning, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the yeah, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. God speaks to Abram and says, go. And, and God is doing a new thing. He's embarking on this new recreation in Genesis chapter 12. And so there's, there's significance to this moment and so we're, 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 talking, we're going to talk about this this morning as the mission of God and the three things that we see in the text that are included in the mission of God. First, the mission of God sends. Second, the mission of God costs. And third, the mission of God blesses. So let's pray and then we're going to dive into the first. Jesus, I just thank you so much that um, we have the privilege to gather, um, to worship you, uh, to encourage each other. God, I'm so thankful that we have your word um, to speak to us, your spirit to guide us in that word. And Father, I pray, I ask that you would speak this morning. We are desperate to hear from you, Lord, and we thank you that you've written it. But Lord, I pray that, that you would impress it afresh on our hearts because we so often hear, um, we so often hear your word and we also frequently ignore what it says. And Lord, so Lord, we, we really need um, you, you to move, you to stir, you to speak, you to convict, you to encourage where we need that, Lord. And I just, I pray, we, we, we lean on that desire and trust that you will speak. And for that, we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the mission of God sends. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. The Lord said to Abram, go. This is, this is they're, they're, we're going to talk more about uh, who Abraham is next week and, and kind of where he came from and what was going on in his life, but I'll, I'll summarize it this way. There was nothing great about Abraham. He wasn't a, 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 this super great man of faith, and God said, look at that great guy, I'm going to use him. No, God just speaks to Abram and tells him to go. Jennifer Worth, in her book, Call the Midwife, wrote this. The protagonist asks, what had impelled Sister Monica Joan to abandon a privileged life for one of hardship, working in the slums of London's Docklands? Was it love of people, I asked her? Of course not, she snapped sharply. How can you love ignorant, brutish people whom you don't even know? Can anyone love filth and squalor or lice and rats? Who can love aching weariness and carry on working in spite of it? One cannot love these things. One can only love God and through his grace come to love his people. 
I asked her how she had heard her calling and come to be professed. She quoted lines from The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. I asked her what was meant by I fled him. And she became cross. Questions, questions. You hear, you wear me out with your questions, child. Find out for yourself. Clearly, she has the gift of evangelism. (laughs) Find out for yourself. We all have to in the end. No one can give you faith. It is a gift from God alone. Seek and ye shall find. Read the gospels. There's no other way. Do not pester me with your everlasting questions. Go with God, child. Just go with God. Her constant phrase, go with God, had puzzled me a good deal. And suddenly it became clear. I had been groping for years to understand, or at least to come to terms with the meaning of life. These three small words, go with God, had puzzled me a great deal. Suddenly it became clear or at least come to terms with the meaning of life. These three small words, go with God, were for me the beginning of faith. And that evening, I started to read the Gospels. That account is is the same account as the Abraham one. He's not a man of great faith, but he has an encounter with God. He has a call, go with God. Have you done that? Have you embraced the God who calls? Because here's the thing. God has a history of sending those he calls. Like Abraham's not the only one. The midwife is not the only one. He did this with Moses. We see this in the Exodus where Moses is shepherding and then there's a burning bush that isn't like burning to the ground. And it, it, it stuns Moses, and then a voice comes and says, go. God speaks to Moses and says, go. Go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and tell him to set my people free. But that primary word to, to Moses in, in his encounter with God is to go. The same is true of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah has this vision where he is in the throne room of God and he falls to his face and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? He feels woefully inadequate, feels like a great sinner. He shouldn't even be in the presence of such a holy, blameless God. And yet he is cleansed. And, and in that moment, God says, who will go for me? Who will go to a people, Here, this sounds like a great job description, who will go to a people who won't hear? Who, who will go and who will speak to them, but they're going to have hard hearts while you do it. And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. Now, I've just mentioned Abraham and Moses and Isaiah, right? These are Old Testament figures of great significance, right? And we shouldn't posit ourselves into the story like, I'm like Abraham. And like, we, we, it's, not all, it's not really a faithful approach to, to put ourselves in the text and act as though these These scenarios are our scenarios. They're not. They were Abraham's and Moses's and Isaiah's. But this pattern carries on. See, the reality is that whenever anyone encounters God in a real way, it sends them out. Have you noticed that? 
Whenever anyone encounters God in a real way, it sends them out. The mission of God always sends us out. To follow Jesus means to be sent out. So Jesus stood on a mountaintop before he ascended to heaven and he said to all of his disciples, go and make disciples of the nations. In John 17, Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. This call on Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and the apostles is the call on every Christian that when you encounter God, you become a part of the mission of God and you are sent. What's fascinating about Abraham, I respect a lot and convicts me a lot, is that in verse 1, at the, right at the beginning there it says, the Lord says, go. The Lord says, go. And he goes on to say, to the land I will show you. And Abraham goes. So, like, picture this with me. Pack up all your stuff. You're leaving. And I'm not going to tell you where. Like, you're going, but I don't, you have no clue where that place is. It tells us in Hebrews 11:8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Yeah, that's faith. Go, Abraham. And so he goes. Where? I, I'll tell you. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, went on a little family holiday to a sunny place and came back to a snowstorm. And we were at the Vancouver airport, arrived in at like one in the morning, and we got to our, we dug our vehicle out of the park and fly from the snow. We're making our way home, dropped our in-laws off in uh, Abbotsford and carried on and it was like a whiteout. I could not see a thing as I drove down the highway. I could not see a thing except for the occasional like reflective sign, little reflector on the right of the highway, just to the right of the highway. And so I was just like, okay, if I stay pretty close to that marker, maybe I'll be okay. But I could not see at all, where I, it was a very rude awakening, all right? It was a very rude awakening. I was like, why did we even go on this trip? I'm so stressed. I just want to go home to my own bed, and here we are. We cannot see a thing, and it's a whiteout, and there's vehicles everywhere. It's terrifying. Imagine Abraham. Go. I'll tell you the place later. Go. Pack up everything and go. It's an incredible thing. See, the Christian life is one of being sent out. The Christian life is also one of relying on the promises of God no matter what takes place in the midst of it. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. Walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Like, do we? I think we like to walk by sight not by faith. I don't, I don't know what you're doing, God, so I'm really ticked off. I have no clue what you're doing. Why is this going so bad? Why are you doing this? I don't like this. I can't see the way. I've just got these tiny little reflectors. It's really frustrating, scary. I want to walk by sight, not by faith. Yeah, but the Christian life is one of relying on the promises of God. Yeah, but, I, but what's next? Rely on the promises of God. 
I don't see what you're doing, God. And since I can't see it, there must not be any point. What is the point in all the madness, God? See, what we learn from Abraham here early on in his story is we learn to trust and obey. Tyson, maybe we could switch the follow-up song after and just sing that old, trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy with Jesus, but to trust and obey. One more time. Yeah, just like, right? It's like, ah, it's just a, but it's really, it, it's the hardest thing and it's the most simple, straightforward thing. Like, to, to live the Christian life is to trust and obey. And when we see everything, we don't need to trust all that much. But when the, when the vision is clouded, oh, that we would trust. When the call is hard, oh, that we would obey. Like, will you trust God with the unknowns in your life? Will you trust him with the diagnosis? Will you trust him with the family scenarios? Will you trust him in the pain and in the hardships of life? Like, will you trust? Will you walk by faith and not by sight? Abraham, go. Where? I'll tell you later. Go. And will you obey him? See, Abraham didn't merely trust God, he obeyed him because God said go and then we read in verse four, it's just very matter of fact, so Abraham went. He trusted God. God, here, go, I have promises for you. He trusted those and so he obeyed. God said go, Abraham went. Abraham was sent. But here's something that when we're called to trust and obey and that feels vulnerable, that feels hard, that feels difficult, that feels risky. Here's the kind of message we need to hear. Abraham went, but, but Jesus went further. See, Jesus willingly left his homeland and all that was comfortable and familiar to go into the void so we could become his. See, our sending God was sent further for us, he'll never send you out further than he already went. Like, doesn't that create a measure of safety even in the sending? He's already gone further. Um, we're excited. We haven't, we'll announce this a little more clearly in the coming weeks, but we're looking forward to the Lake Yurok campus launching at some point in the spring. And we have this incredible base team of like 24 adults and 20 kids. So a place that had no kids and 20 people when the door shut has a base team of incredible people who want to serve and are just going to be that core to our Lake Iraq campus, 44 of them, just as this committed group to serve. And we were putting a call out to anybody in any campus, go make that your place of worship and serve there and build a church there in a community that doesn't have one and be a blessing. And there were families from our Chilliwack campus, right? So like 45 minute drive away, 50 minute drive away saying, yeah, we'll go. We'll uproot our families and we'll go. We will go there. And and I heard from Pastor Chris Battle, the campus pastor there, he told me a story of one of the couples from Chilliwack here that responded and said, our family will be a part of the base team there. 
And way back when we did a, um, well, we had a church meeting, really. We just had a vision night and we talked about the opportunity about Lake Iraq. It was a while back now. And we asked just by a show of hands, an affirmation, like, do you as well sense God calling us to these places? And it was just overwhelming, the response. Well, this couple were sitting there that night and they said to each other, if we're going to affirm this, we shouldn't affirm that they, yes, the church broadly, should go do that. Yeah, you guys should go about that. They said, if we're going to raise our hands in affirmation, we have to be willing to be the ones to go. And so that night, they put their hands up affirming and saying, we're putting our hands up to affirm that, yes, our church should go there. But in putting our hands up, we're also saying, and God, if you call us to go, we'll go. They put their hands up. And of course, God loves people who will go because he's ascending God. And so wouldn't you know that he impressed it on their hearts that, you're, yeah, you're going. <laughs> you are going. And so they are. Man, like what, what can bring more joy? than hearing God say go and getting to be a part of being sent. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of the mission of God. He sent Abraham. He sent Moses. He sent Isaiah. He sends his disciples. He sends you to go. Secondly, the mission of God costs. Let's be real, right? The mission of God costs. The Lord said to Abraham, verse 1, go from your country, go from your kindred, and go from your father's house to the land I will show you. Now, for some of you adventurous types, you're like, man, I'll hop on a plane and leave everybody. That's great. That's ideal. I would love that, right? Well, you're not Mennonite or Dutch and live in Chilliwack, right? Because that's what, we don't do that, right? We stay family. We're all in Greendale, you know. We picked on Rosedale last week. We're working our way through. We'll, we'll get to everyone. But, but contextually, this was enormous. This was enormous. Leave your country, Abraham. What that meant was leaving the land that provided for his needs. Ur was, was agriculturally really rich. Leave that land that provides for you. Leave it. Leave your people, really your clan. Leave your community. Leave where you have acceptance a level of prosperity, and most importantly, leave your security because you're this, you gather in a clan so that you can be safe, so that you can protect one another, be a mass big enough to be avoided. Leave all that. And then finally, leave your father's house. Leave parents, leave siblings, leave aunts, leave uncles, leave cousins. This was necessary for Abraham's spiritual growth. I'm sending you out. And it's going to cost you all of these things. So Abraham leaves. His country, his community, and his family, he needed to step out in faith and put his reliance on God alone. I, I was thinking this week, when are the times in my life when I've really like had to step out and trust that God is leading and will provide where it feels vulnerable and costly. And actually coming to Central in the first place was one of those scenarios for me. God was doing a lot of stuff in my life, really, I think, to humble me and to change me and to grow me. Emily and I went when we were newly married to Vancouver, and I thought I was going to plant this impressive church in the city of Vancouver. And we left a short time later having done none of that, but decided that that wasn't what we were going to be doing. And God just used that time not to build a church, but to build in me a, uh, a work in my own heart. 
And we decided for whatever reason at the time, like there were no grand reasons. We were like, let's move to Chilliwack. And I was even contemplating, do I want to be in ministry? Do I want to keep doing this? It's hard and there's this difficulty and I'm wired this way and I'm not sure if, you know, this is where I, what I should do. But then a couple of churches engaged me and asked if I would consider coming on their staff. And so I was looking at that. And then this opportunity came up at Central. And it was the part-time opportunity. You know, the one that doesn't provide for your needs. <laughs> and so my first impulse was like, well, that's, that's not workable. And yet we incognito in the summer, this is like 2010, like went to a service in the summer. And it was so weird. Emily and I were in the foyer and this older couple invited us over for lunch. That hadn't happened to us like ever. And then we walked a little further and there was a couple in like their 30s and they invited us over for lunch. And we're like, this place is weird. (laughs) It's a little creepy. It's pretty amazing. And we just were like, I think God wants us to come here. To the one that makes no sense. So... You know, it's pretty neat to have those stories in your life where you can look back years out and be like, oh, I see what God was doing. And I get that a little bit. That, that's pretty special. And I saw him working all of those things. But in those moments, man, that cost. It cost a lot. It was hard. See, we get it mixed up. We, we often think that if we're faithful, then our lives will be ones of ease and triumph success. If I do the right things for God, if I stay away from the wrong things I'm not supposed to do, God will bless me, which means I will have ease, I will have success, I will have triumphs. So oftentimes when when things go sour, when things go wrong, when there's difficulty, we go, God, I'm doing all these right things. Not recognizing that the mission of God itself always costs. There is a cost. Have you experienced the cost in the Christian life? See, God was going to bring his promised salvation to the world through a man who first had to leave everything he held dear. Abraham learned this from the get-go. The mission of God sends and the mission of God costs. He learned that in verse 1. And Jesus says the Christian life is exactly the same. Luke 9 If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, as soon as you start to move out into the world as a Christian, a representative of Christ, you will find that it costs you. How does the mission of God cost you. That vulnerable moment where you're like, man, I feel like I need to tell this person about Jesus. But that might affect my status. That might affect my reputation. That, that really pushes me out of my comfort zone. Yet the mission of God costs. Recognize that, man, m- the mission of God costs when it causes us to open our wallets because ministry costs. We leverage everything that's been entrusted to us. Man, man, does that cost? 
We use our gifts or spend our time on mission. Man, time is a valuable commodity. We never seem to have enough of it. And you want me to serve here and to serve there? And, ah, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to do that. Man, the mission of God costs everything. And here's a hard word this morning. This is as hard as I'm going to push you this morning. If these costly characteristics aren't yours, you're not only not listening to Jesus' directions, you're not looking at who he is. Jesus said, take up your cross. Why aren't you giving me ease, Lord? Why aren't you giving me comfort? Because you're supposed to be wearing a cross today. And it may not just be that you're not listening to God, it's actually that you're not like God. It might not be that you're not simply not listening to Jesus. It's like you're not, you're not like Jesus because mission of God always costs. Because God went so that he could bless us. You won't be a blessing to others unless you're willing to lose things and unless you're willing to be a sent one. See, Jesus went at all costs so that we could be reached Your salvation cost Jesus everything. He never never sends us further than he's already been, but he never asks us to pay a price that he already hasn't paid more. But just following up on that illustration of coming to Central, like I, I look on the other side of that and go, wow, God, what what an amazing thing. What a privilege to to go, to be sent. And for it to cost, and yet, oh, to see the blessings that far outweigh the risk and the challenge and the cost. God, you're so good. And that's exactly what we see in this text. We see, thirdly, that the mission of God blesses. It says in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those, plural, who bless you, And him, singular, who dishonors you, I will curse. Meaning, yes, if there's a rejection of Abraham, really a representation of God, then there's a rejection of God. But it's meant to have this overarching emphasis of a blessing to the masses. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What promises? What incredible promises to Abraham? First, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, which is particularly incredible because him and his wife have no kids. I'm going to make you a great nation. Then he goes on to say, I'm going to make your name great. Which if you have your Bible open to Genesis 12, just look back at Genesis chapter 11 because there's something fascinating. There's this thing called the Tower of Babel, a, a, a people in Babel that are like, let's build a tower to the heavens and make a great name for ourselves. And that, that plan just falls flat and they're spread throughout the world with languages, different languages, and all of that. They wanted to make a great name for themselves. Literally, the very next chapter, God comes along and says, I want to make your name great. This is the way that it truly works. And of course, in the line of Abraham will come a great king, King David, an heir to the throne that was promised to Abraham. And then, of course, ultimately, through the line of Abraham, through the line of David, comes a king named Jesus, who Philippians tells us God gave the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Here's the rich 
promise this morning. This isn't simply a promise to Abraham that has nothing to do with, ec- with, with us. It has everything to do with us. And that's what Paul wants us to see in Galatians chapter 3 when he says in 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? The promise to Abraham was ultimately a promise about Jesus. Then it goes on in verse 29 of Galatians 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Oh, that you would see. Yes, we are sent. Yes, there is a cost. But oh, are there infinite blessings found in him. See, what God started in Abraham, he brought to completion through his son, Jesus. These incredible blessings are for us. You can believe them and you can trust in the promises of God for you. But God, being this God of mission, has so much more in mind for the blessings that he gives us. He makes us a blessing like Abraham so that we can be a blessing. He goes on to say that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Doesn't mean every single person, but peoples will be blessed as ultimately the gospel goes to the nations. Again, this blessing given to Abraham actually found its fulfillment in Jesus. Galatians 3.8 says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How will the nations be blessed? Through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how it will go out to the nations. That's the, Abraham was in on the gospel beforehand. That was the blessing that Abraham ultimately relied on. This gospel announced to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ is the message the church proclaims. It sends us, it costs us, but oh, does it bless us. Finally, Abraham enters the land and does the only thing that seems appropriate. He worships God. Look at verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Do you notice that he pitches a tent but he builds an altar? That the promises of God are being revealed to him. God is appearing to him and God is showing them to him. And what does Abraham do? He pitches a tent but he builds an altar. One's transient and one is permanent. And Abraham says, in the things that I'm entrusted with, I'll make those transient. But in the things of God, those will be permanent in my life. So he goes to a particular place and he builds an altar. This is God's land. This is God's promise. I rely on God and he lives in a tent. Is that how your life is oriented? When it comes to the things I'm entrusted with, they're transient, they're open-handed. But when it comes to the things of God, that's where I hold all firm. I build an altar to the Lord in that. He held loosely to the one and tightly to the other. We can be guilty sometimes of doing the exact opposite. 
making our plans and asking God to bless them rather than joining in God's purposes in the world, recognizing that they are blessed. I just encourage you, hold tightly to the things of God and hold loosely to the things that vie for that place in your life. Finally, when was the last time you built an altar to the Lord? I don't mean some like weird thing in the backyard. I mean, like, when did you build an altar to the Lord in, in, in the sense of open your hands and say, my life is yours, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the blessings you've poured out upon me. What are you asking of me next, God? What are you asking of me now, God? See, he wanted the place of permanence to be the things of God in his life. And in these key moments in his walk with God, he built an altar. God, be my foundation. Be what's permanent. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for the promises. Where would you lead me? What would you have me do? When was the last time you built an altar to the Lord? See, Abraham wasn't special. We're going to talk, that's really going to be the theme next week. Abraham wasn't special. Actually, he was quite a colossal screw-up. I should take a lot of hope in that. I do. He was ordinary. And God in his grace chose to do something extraordinary for him and through him. So what did Abraham do? He stepped out in faith, left comfort and safety, and put his trust in God. As we embark in the series on Abraham, I just invite you to do the same. Step out in faith, leave comfort and safety, and put your trust in God. That's precisely the kind of faith that God uses to change and to bless the world. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come on up. I'm going to invite our worship band to come on up and sing uh, Trust and Obey, There's No Other Way. Or something different. I want to give you the freedom, brother. (laughs) As the Spirit leads. Just to close and to set up the communion table for us, Abraham left home and family to go to a backwards land at God's command. Jesus went further and he sacrificed more, far more. God's promises to us have been confirmed in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but how can I trust Jesus? Like, how can I trust that he'll see me through? How can I trust that he's faithful? Because he's gone further and he sacrificed more to the point of shedding his blood and his body being given on the cross. See, his faith never failed so that you and I, whose faith so often falters, could be welcomed into God's presence as sons and daughters of his, clothed in the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus. So I just invite you in this time, we're going to sing a couple of songs. I just invite you, if you have put your trust in Jesus, yeah, say, I'm relying on Jesus. I believe that it cost Jesus his life so that I could have salvation at the cross. He died so I could live. My sins paid so I could be cleansed. If, if your trust dwells there in your heart, I just invite you over the course of a couple songs to come on forward and receive the bread and the cup because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup and said, this represents my blood shed 
for you. Continue to do this in remembrance of me. So it's, it's an acknowledgement that we need Jesus. We're saved by his grace and all that he accomplished on the cross. I also want to invite you, just take a moment to build an altar to the Lord. To, to, to renew, to say, God, you call me out and it costs and you bless. I want to I worship you with my life. And just give that some evaluation. I want to invite you to repent. We're all sinners saved by grace. So I want to invite you to repent. Knowing that you can then come walk forward free. Not with guilt, not with shame, but forgiven. So let me pray for us and then we'll respond in those ways. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. You sought us out and we see it in the story of Abraham. You came to rescue and save a broken, fractured, sinful world. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your promises. Lord, I pray that we would root our trust in you and we would be obedient in response. And Lord, I thank you for the blessings you give. They produce such joy in us. You went to the cross so we could get life. Oh, we praise you in response. In Jesus' name, amen.